Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. Okay, so we're talking about difficult placements. Um, Asad, what do you think is a, a difficult placement? What makes a difficult placement? Do you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to pin down because I think it can be so multifactorial. Ultimately, surgery is an apprenticeship. So you learn attach the hip of one, maybe a couple of people. So I think the most important thing you have is a good trainee-trainer relationship. And if that is lacking, you're going to have a bad time. You know, if you don't have a good rapport with your with your trainer, they won't impart their kernels of wisdom. They may not let you operate. And even though it's only one person, if it's someone you have a close relationship with, it starts to affect your psyche and it's, you know, it messes with your mojo. And then you might end up getting less out of the other educational opportunities you bail out, you lose, you disenfranchise, you don't want to do it. Mm. Yeah, you lose your motivation, I think. Yeah, exactly. And certainly, you know, when you don't have a good relationship or not just with your supervisor necessarily or the consultant, but also with your colleagues at the same level as you or, um, uh, you know, that 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 can also leave a bad taste in your mouth with, with regards to the placement. Oh, no, I wholeheartedly agree. You've got to have a good rapport with your colleagues because your colleagues are doing what you're doing you're all trying to navigate this you know these waters together and if you've got someone who's adversarial and actively making your life difficult then again you're in for you're in for rubbish placement but i'd like to think that most colleagues will probably like most trainees are going to be on a similar level mm. so we all have common commonalities united interests united objectives we're all going on the same journey and we're maybe at different points but ultimately what we want to get out of this placement is the same and therefore there's you know the solidarity and or security in numbers so if you all band together you all get the stuff done although i've heard it said that that's not always the case i think i've only experienced it once twice but you might shut yourself off from other opportunities because you're afraid of sticking your neck out in case it invokes um, a negative response from other people you might need to ask a favour off or you might need to ask for support from. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've not personally had any problem with colleagues at my own level, I don't think. Um, and certainly if, if I have, it hasn't affected my view of the placement at all. Um, I think, you know, sometimes personalities clash, but yeah. I've never experienced like a, a massive hindrance from any any colleagues at my own level but i can i can see how especially if you have especially in surgery because um you know the the training resources things like theater time um are a limited resource and sometimes you know there's that whole phrase about sharpening your elbows and 
you have to sort of share some of the training resources with your colleagues sometimes. I think if you have a uh, a colleague who maybe doesn't like to share, um, that can be um, a real hindrance. And I, I've heard of certain colleagues who have had that, but um, I personally haven't. Um, I know that does go on, though. I think the current selection process has many, many, many flaws, and that's not what we're here to talk about. But the one thing that is good about it is it kind of eliminates like nepotism. So you can't mm. get one prof picking his favourite person. Yeah, yeah. Like you're getting the number, and this guy walks around like a tin pot despot, walking around be like, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. The rest of you do now. So it's it's a bit more of a meritocracy. I know it's open to abuse, but what I'm saying is people are giving numbers, they're giving jobs based on what they can do, not who they know. And I feel like that kind of maybe has cut down on um, sociopaths in surgical training. I feel like most people I've come across now are fairly even-keeled humans. So colleagues, I've found is less of an issue. The um, only other thing that I sort of sort of brings to mind is the relationship that your team has um you know so for example your consultants and whether they get on because i know that people have had placements um where the team hasn't worked well together uh and that has caused massive problems for them i think generally in terms of trying to practice with within a team where um consultants dislike each other um or 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 maybe there's um uh, problems between the registrars that can uh, make a placement, you know, challenging. Oh, I definitely agree. Like, <laughs> I worked in <laughs> I worked in one department, right, which will remain nameless. But it was, honestly, it was it was ridiculous. So the the department offices were in this one bit, and all there was a main kind of room where all the secretaries sat, typed letters, and whatnot, and all the consultants had their offices off the back of this one big room. It's almost like a regular office space with cubicles around the side. So you go in and you'd ask one consultant, you know, this guy turned up, he's got this problem, da 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 da, da. What should we do about it? You're on call. And they'll scroll through it and, they, and he's like, oh, this person did their operation. Why don't you go ask them? It's literally the guy next door. Mm. Like, okay, fine. So you go, you, you go out the room, you knock on his door. You're like, your mate next door said to talk to you about this. He says that you should sort it. He's like, I did a hernia repair 10 years ago on this guy. I've got nothing to do with him. Tell him to go sort it out. And you're like, all right. And then you go back and you're the messenger. Some sort of farcical joke where you're just playing messenger between two people either side of a paper-thin stud wall. You could literally, They could honestly punch a hole through the wall and talk to each other, but instead you're being the go-between. And it just made that that particular department was was very dysfunctional. And it's not the kind of place you want to work in. Because you end up, you treat the consultants, not the patients. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not a good atmosphere. It affects your training as well, you know. To, yeah, sure. um, yeah. It's just... You do one thing one way <coughs> with one consultant, and mm. then you go into theatre with the next person, like, who the bloody hell taught you to do that? <laughs> your colleague, the guy who sits opposite you. <laughs> like, well, don't do it like that. And then you go in with the first guy. Who taught you to do this? Like, oh, never mind. And you just get nowhere. Yeah, yeah, you know they. You mentioned you know you're treating the um the, the consultants, not the patients. 
there's always this concept of service provision. You know, I remember one guy saying to me once, oh, this this placement isn't training, it's just service provision. And I think it was right at the beginning of my training. I think I, I sort of understood what he meant, but um, I didn't quite appreciate it um, until you've been in that position where you feel like you are just providing the service rather than um, meeting your training needs. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will, when they're talking about maybe a, a negative experience on a placement, will say, oh, yeah, it was, it was just all service provision. There wasn't any training. Mm. You know, it, would you say that that is a feature of bad placements or, you know, is service provision training as well? So I think you've summed it up really nicely, Jamie. I think you've hit the definition of a, of a difficult placement. And a difficult placement is where you're not meeting your training needs throughout whatever avenue or channel or obstruction you're featuring. It's give and take. It's reciprocity. You're always going to have little bits of service provision. So, for example, one of your colleagues might call in sick. Uh, which happens and then someone says oh do you mind covering the shift and you go yeah no it's fine um you know i'll cover it what i can but i'm not going to make that a, a, a repeat thing like i'm not just going to go there holding a bleep endlessly so i'm prepared to help you out but i'm not also your dog's body or your lackey that bails you out in times of desperation if that makes sense yeah, yeah, yeah. and like i was saying you know we talked previously about it in the previous episode, you can turn things that seem uneducational into fairly useful educational events as long as you're savvy about it. If you flip it in a way that it benefits you, then it can help. Like, for example, we don't need to go into it again, but rather than being a passive agent on the ward round, be an active, be lead the ward round, that would be something that turns a mundane thing into an active thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always wonder what, what counts as because service provision Surely we'll, you know, we're all getting paid to provide a service. You get trained during that, but um, I think, you know, I always think of like when I picture someone just doing service provision, it's usually a a task that is um, uh, not really challenging to them. So like it'd be like a an, a, a core trainee doing bloods and TTOs, um, or you know, a registrar doing. Um, SHO level clerking in A&E, that sort of thing. Um, I don't think that, you know, if you're an SHO and you're on call and you're seeing p- patients in A&E, that's, that, that is training in itself. You are getting something out of that. That is true. That is true. But equally, um, you're in training because you need to be taught and developed and shaped. So uh, there is an element of, of service that you provide to the trust, like you help the departments maintain the staff in, you help hospitals tied over and tick through the work but your kind of response for doing that is that you should be taught how to do your job or taught new things so anything that lacks educational value excessively can be considered service like for example theater if you go to theater and no one's teaching how to operate and you're just holding a pair of langbecks all day long that service provision is useless you're not going to learn to operate just by holding retractors now, obviously, you can be an observer in theatre and learn stuff. So you can watch how the procedure's done and you can pick up new ideas, new techniques, and you can be like, oh, that's how you use the scissors or that's how you get to this thing. But, I mean, ultimately, surgery's doing, so someone has to let you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right, you, you do learn things when you're on call, but when you're kind of relentlessly on call, I think, like, if you're covering lots of shifts, you don't really get much in the way of... Um, 
I wouldn't say reprieve, but there's like a mental fatigue that comes with it. If you're told you've got like four people waiting in A and E, and you've got uh, this to do, this to do, this, whatever, then you 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 see one person, you go into the next, you go into the next, you go into the next, you go into the next. You never get time to kind of reflect on what you've done and consolidate the learning message, like the learning points from that. Yeah. So in that way, yeah, seeing people in A and E is experience, but you you don't get the or being on call, but you don't get the chance that you would say in clinic, which is a lot more serene and a calmer environment or in an elective theater list to really take stock of and consolidate the, the kind of key educational objectives or goals. So that's where those activities, whilst they seem whatever can also be, they are still service provision. Then yeah, if I was a local member, yeah, fine, whatever I'm getting paid, 50 quid an hour, I'll do what you want. But we're getting paid a third of that or whatever, you know, peanuts in comparison. And the only thing that we ask for is that people value our education and teachers. So that's when people get annoyed about service provision. It, it does make you bitter. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're in a training pathway and you've got your own, you know, you, you've got objectives to get out of that and they're your responsibility. It's very frustrating. That's exactly it. You don't have the opportunity to do that. <laughs> So it's established then that a difficult placement is dependent on a number of things, mainly relationships with your trainers and your colleagues, but also the whether that placement meets your training needs. Can then a difficult placement in any way be rewarding or is it you know, a negative thing to have during your training? I'll, I'll come out and say it. Yeah, a negative placement can be a really, really good thing for you. Uh, and that sounds a bit bizarre, but we're going to get a little bit existential here, Jamie. So I don't know if you're familiar with the works of Marcel Proust. I'm sure you're going to. I'm sure you're going to tell me a lot. Right, I'm not a Proustian scholar. Right, <laughs> Marcel Proust. I'll give you a little bit of it. Marcel Proust is this like very, very well respected uh, French author. So he's got this uh, series of short stories called "In Search of Times Lost." He's an interesting guy because what he said was the best time in his life or the most useful time in his life was the worst. And it was when he was an awkward teenager and he was a he was a gay man in a time when homosexuality was a crime and he was bullied for being effeminate, for being awkward and different and whatever. He was tormented mercilessly, especially as a young man and whatever. And he said those are the best times in his life, not the joy that he experienced when he was a celebrated academic and everyone thinks he's a genius. It was because the worst time in his life made him, it made him the person he is. And the quote he uses, which I quite like actually, is happiness is salutary for the body, but sorrow develops the powers of the spirit. And to some extent, I think that's true. Because what we're we're sort of alluding to is is times when you get things aren't going favorably for you then you have got to learn to adapt and that process can be transformative for you and it can make you into a better, more resilient doctor and surgeon. Because ultimately, while you're in this hurdle now, you'll probably come to a bigger set of hurdles in the future and you'll come onto a bigger set of challenges as you progress through training. Like that will happen. So 
getting used to dealing with difficult things is good. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, think thinking back through my like my med school days and things, the times which I remember as being the most valuable is actually where I had people maybe tell me things I didn't want to hear and sort of challenge me. And it was, but I think it was then overcoming those challenges and having you sort of alluded to it earlier. You know, if someone tells you maybe your knowledge is not good enough or your skills aren't good enough, you go away and that motivates you to improve. But then you get that satisfactory sort of positive feedback that you have actually done that. Then that, I think, is is what I would say is, is satisfactory. I think one of the most frustrating things is things is don't you don't they don't tell you that you've improved if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're going to get it both ways in difficult placements. You know, if someone is a vocal critic of you, you'd like to think criticism is just another form of feedback. Mm. Maybe feedback you don't want to hear. But sometimes it does take a bit of um, introspection to realise that perhaps in that instance, you might be the person at fault and you might need to adjust what you're doing. And it's humbling Ultimately, if the feedback is valid and you believe it's valid and, and the criticism is fair, then it's a, again, it's a transformative process. It's only trying to make you better or achieve your kind of potential. I think that that's always the, the thing is when, when you're having maybe a difficult placement, you have got to ask yourself, is it the placement or is it me? Um, so I do, I think you do have to be quite introspective when you're confronted with a challenging placement and yeah. sort of really do ask yourself. Could I do, be doing anything differently to make this a more positive experience? I suppose that brings us on to the next. The question is, if you have a difficult placement, indeed, maybe not just necessarily the placement, but a difficult supervisor, um, what, what do you do? I mean, this is a really difficult thing, isn't it? But um, first of all, it goes. We go immediately back to your last point. You've got to ask yourself: Is it me or is it them? Yeah, I'm not sure. Genuinely, I think you should go to them and ask them. Just be explicit. Am I the fault here? And and you can list it like I haven't got to do this. I haven't done this. I don't feel like I've been taught. I don't think I'm doing this. I'm doing all these on calls. Why? Like, am I the problem here, or or not? And I have been in situations where I've received either affirmation that it's something I need to do differently or the opposite where people go, Oh no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And it's still, that doesn't resolve the issue, but at least when people are honest with you and explicit, then you can take that on board. You, you know, you can modify your behavior or whatever it is you're doing. That's not working. You've given, been given the opportunity to modify it. Mm. And I feel like, most trainers won't have an issue telling you if the problem lies with you. But it, I appreciate it's a really, really hard thing to ask someone. Like, am I the, am I the problem child here? Is it my fault? And that, that it, it does take some courage to actually ask someone that. Mm. How do you do that? How do you ask a trainer? I assume you don't just go up and say... <laughs> You or me? Do you know? No, I actually did. I was quite direct about this, but I was only direct. I think as as like st three, 
and you know, I did some time beforehand. So at this point, I was a little bit more assertive than say some people might be, and I wasn't. I'm not shy about doing it. I'm not a a wallflower. If I have a problem, I'll say what is the problem. I need to I need to talk to you about this. But uh, I appreciate that's not easy for everyone to do. Maybe just get this person one on one. I suppose once you've done that, it may be that that's not helpful. I know of some colleagues who have spoken to people um, outside of their trust about a particular placement, like the deanery. You know, when when do you you sort of choose to escalate things if if you're really having trouble in a placement? It is a shame that we kind of have to talk about it, but I think we should talk about it. And my sort of disclaimer is that I have been in placements which were not welcoming, and I found myself rather than being on the offensive, looking for training opportunities, I then went very much on the defensive, which is like damage limitation. Sadly, my aggressive damage damage limitation policy paid off. So I'll try to explain what I mean. Whenever you kick the can up the road to someone more senior, i.e. an educational supervisor, or even you involve the deanery, you've really got to demonstrate some evidence of what you're saying because they almost take like almost a legal framework to this so what you say might they might say well it's speculative or they'll use this sort of remark which is well we've sent other trainees before and this is the first time we've ever had an issue how do we know this is not a you thing or whatever thing and they may not say that explicitly but that's sometimes what they're thinking so whenever you are in a situation that's not working itself out, you've got to be able to demonstrate that you've made efforts to try and get things back on track. And the best effort that you can do is anything that's written. So, for example, if you say, I've tried and tried and tried and tried, I just can't get my supervisor to agree to a placement meeting, that doesn't hold any water. You've got to show email chains. Your emails being sent getting no reply sending the emails no reply and you've tried on multiple occasions that is something that you can show clearly i've tried to get as many people on board on multiple occasions to try and do this for me and here is the proof that i've done that does that make sense yeah claim didn't you know what i mean the other thing that you that you have to do you need to write things down so for example if you find yourself doing a lot of service provision or if you're being asked to help out on the ward incessantly what i would suggest you can do is keep a copy of all these emails and all these rotors that come out that have you doing service tasks yeah and i actually what i did was i wrote a little diary i wrote a little diary saying like you know week beginning monday whatever Monday, wasn't meant to be in theatre, theatre cancelled, asked to help out on board. Tuesday, blah, 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 blah. And I've written a contemporaneous diary with all these rotor amendment emails kind of attached and all the weekly rotors attached. And then I uh, I uploaded it to my ASCP in like the miscellaneous section so that when I came in front of the firing squad, and I did, and they were like, your logbook's empty, this is empty, what's going on? Are you even bothering? Are you even showing up to work? And I was like, well, let me tell you, ARCP panel, go on my uh, portfolio, go to miscellaneous, click there, enjoy. 
Um, and so it, what, what that does is that that obviously demonstrates that despite your efforts, despite your best effort, you know, things like that, um, you've got evidence to prove that you're being a diligent trainee, you're knocking on the door, you're trying all the measures that you can. Yeah. It, it can't just be speculative. You've got it. You've got to prove it. Yeah, there is actually a feature on ISCP where you can put your rotor in each week. Oh, can you? Yeah, I was doing it. For a bit. I, I got it got too um, laborious after a while. But it was. It's quite a good way. For example, you know, if you have less operations on your logbook, then what is the minimum for that placement? Yeah, you can. You can then sort of show that. Okay, I wasn't go- I wasn't going to theatre, but I was I was in doing on calls and things like that. It's just it's just a way of like week by week showing what you, what you're doing. But yeah, I think that is that is very good advice, especially because the thing is sometimes you can have a really bad placement that's not necessarily your fault. Yeah, exactly. but you you will be the one taking responsibility for it at your ARCP. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it seems unfair, but unfortunately that's just the way the way it is sometimes. Yeah, so yeah. I think if you can demonstrate that it's not you it's the system or whatever the problems in the hospital yeah. um, then that will uh, avoid you know problems so you talk you i mean you already alluded to um you know your own experiences you probably have a lot more experience than me i've only been in core training for just over a year now i mean is there any particular experiences of bad placements yeah, I mean, I think there's two that I, that I can reference, and I'm going to talk about them because while they they were difficult placements, they were difficult for for sort of different reasons actually. And one was a very supportive department, and it was part of the issue was a me issue, but they also helped. Um, and then the other one was yeah, it was a toxic department. I'll probably start with toxic one. So I mean, it was my first job as a brand new ST three. Obviously, I'm not a general surgery trainee, but I was working in general surgery just for a bit of experience because that's part of the training that I have to do. And I had a personality clash with my clinical supervisors. We ended up butting heads a few times about a few different things. And they didn't like the way I sort of managed patients, although no one else could really find a particular problem with it it just wasn't to their liking or, or the way they do things i found that difficult because you know in my previous life i was left to manage problems and this consultant was very i wouldn't say the helicopter parent but they're a new consultant they're very diligent and they didn't like not knowing the ins and outs of whatever i was doing um there came a point where Post a pretty serious post op complication happened, and I was on call and I picked it up and I spotted it and I made a plan, I made a list of differentials, and I handed it over to a more senior colleague of me saying, Look, this woman's come in, she's sick, she's had this operation done by this consultant. This consultant knows, here is my plan. And my colleague at the time was uh, ST6 and had already sat the first part of the FRCS. So I thought, you know, safe pair of hands. They went to go see him, re-examined them, recontextualized everything, and then said, yep, no, I agree with the management. You carry on, blah, blah, blah. We then post-take this this patient in the morning, and this this same consultant, my clinical supervisor, was there at the, at the handover, listened to the meeting, and I raised my concerns. And I'm like, fine. Post-take the patient, kind of 
picked up on what I was saying, took the patient to the theatre for a pretty serious post-op complication. Unfortunately, the patient died. But obviously, that triggers a serious untoward incident, unexpected patient death, blah, 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 blah. And both people were trying to push this back on me. And I felt really aggrieved by that. Like, first of all, you know, I've handed over to someone who's midway through their exit exams, nearly consultant, and you've agreed with me and you're trying to push this back on me. And then and also a consultant who's been to see him, post-taped him, and then dealt with it. And I, I felt like, you know, you're trying to play hot potato with with this situation. And, for you know, ultimately, it's not my fault. I've seen the patient. I've done whatever. They've been seen by someone who's way more experienced than me, someone who's a consultant. So none of this is my fault. If you didn't like my plan, you should have changed it at even near nighttime handover when you when you reviewed them yourself we should change it after the ward round so at that point that that's when i was like you know what the the waters here are getting stormy you know this is this is not the kind of department i want to be in i need to close myself off i need to not stick my neck out just ride it out and at that point i kind of I let my training program director know that i was having a rocky placement and i'd run into some well I wouldn't say hostilities, but we were not seeing things at the same level. We weren't seeing eye to eye about things. And then the forewarning helped, and I explained the situation, and I provided the supplementary documentation. Like, for example, the results of the trust's SUI, which is a serious untoward incident, kind of absolved me of any wrongdoing. And they said that's because, you know, you carried out a management plan. They were seen by a more senior doctor who saw that person in person, and they were seen by a consultant in person, and then the patient, regrettably, unfortunately, they died. But there's not a lot more that you can do. So I sent all this to the, to my TPD, and what happened was that that and this this left a really really like I was really really angry about this. The evening before my interim ARCP, my clinical supervisor at like half eleven at night wrote clinical supervisor comments on your you know on your on your uh, form and they'd written that you know is underperforming i cut corners i was uh, not really that honest uh I'd, my actions had led to a death of a patient and they basically threw me under the bus the evening before my arcp so i walk into my arcp expecting everything to be normal and midway through you know they, they bring up your portfolio on the screen and the screen just happened to be behind my head and one of the panel members was like, turn around. So I just sort of quit my head. Have you read these comments? I, was like, I can't really see. They were like, well, we'll scroll it up and put it on there. Have you read this comment? And I read it. I was pretty horrified, to be honest. But then I saw my TPD in, 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 the, in the panel. And I sort of was this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. And then I said, no, I haven't read these comments. But to be honest, to me, it's, it, this is really underhanded. This is written like nine hours before I was, I was come to see you. So they've not said this to me in person. This is like someone trying to derail you. Thankfully, the, you know, on the balance of probabilities, because I'd sort of made it aware and I'd, I'd written things down and I'd, I'd sort of documented this and documented that and documented that, I was kind of, you know, let off. And I had a long, long chat with the TPD and I said, look, you know, I, I really don't want to go back to that department. and I don't ever want to go back to the department for anything. It might produce some really, really good trainees, but I've had a really miserable experience. Uh, and thankfully, I haven't had to, and it, and I probably will never have to go back there, which is which is good. So that is an example of when you've got to be a savvy and a bit clever and sort of protect yourself. You've got to circle the wagons around you to stop 
people preying on you. If that the, the thing is that you, what it sounds like from that story is that you stopped being a trainee almost at that point. You know, you kept your head down, which is not what a trainee needs to do. A trainee needs to be going out, seeking opportunities and all that. Um, it sounds like you weren't able to do that because, you know, the relationship between you and your trainer had broken down. Yeah. I mean, what I would say to you as well, actually, is training is peaks and troughs. So you're going to have good placements. You might have less good placements. And then you'll have some fantastic placements. So this is what the TPD said to me. He said, not every placement has to be a 10 out of 10. In actual fact, my next placement was, it was fantastic. I had like a trainer that I instantly gelled with. Like the number of operations that I got, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a vascular trainee. And in one six month block, I did seven right hemis which is ridiculous. You know what I mean, I did two, two anterior sections. He'd let me do like two or three anterior sections myself. I have no yep. need to do them. So it was, it was, you know, I went from a famine to like an absolute feast uh, within the space of, you know, one rotational day. Yeah. And I think that is, a, you know, a really good thing to remember when you're having a difficult placement is that it's, it's, it's almost you know expected uh, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't hasn't had at least one challenging placement along the way but i think it's interesting you touched upon it when you're talking about that placement before is that sometimes i think one of the most downhearted disheartening things is when people before you or even people there at the same time of you time as you are having a good placement and you're having a miserable time that i think is one of the most difficult things to come to terms with because then you really do think it's probably me rather than the placement itself. But I don't think that's always the case. Um, I think sometimes you can just have a bad placement or bad time. It's not all your fault. It's just, some, you know, these things happen. So I think it's, yeah, it was an, you touched upon it. It's an important thing to remember. Yeah, there are good placements. There are bad placements. It is rubbish when you do have a bad placement, though. It can really, really mess with your mojo. Mm. I think it's, you know, at least to some people leaving training. I've certainly heard of that sometimes it's one one placement too many that throws you I agree I mean I think it's hard isn't it what I would say is it's like in uh, Lord of the Rings this, is it Lord of the Rings no that's you shall not pass that phrase the idiom this too shall pass not Gandalf not Gandalf the other thing um, this too shall pass so even if you're in a bit of adversity it will get better eventually whether that's because you leave or uh, or uh, people suddenly improve the other example I was going to give was a bit of half of a me problem. So we could probably talk about this in another episode, but I was going through a period of burnout a year later, actually, SD4. And I was working in a department that I actually, I actually really love, but I was going through a difficult patch in my own time. And what ended up happening was people would ask me if I could cover things like if I would just do uh cover outliers or instead of going to theater i would do this thing and i kind of was just like i was so sort of fed up and burnt out i was just like yeah whatever i don't care fine fine so i ended up being a bit of a, a go-to for the, the, a local rotor person to, to sort of bail them out of trouble and then what happened was i booked up my ideas a little bit and then i started complaining and they still didn't address it and then i started kicking up more of a fuss so it was a, a sort of a me problem uh, and, and facilitated by me. And then I was perhaps a bit too late to correct it. But what I ended up doing was 
I just wrote down all the times that I ended up not being timetable in for theatre and I submitted all the emails that I had with the rotor person being like, listen, I need to go to theatre, I need to do this, I need to do art, this, that and the other. I submitted all all the um, weekly rotors we'd get with people's different activities, not on-call rotors, just like weekly rotors. You know, this person's going to theatre on a Monday, Monday, this person's going to this clinic, this person's going to this day case procedure or this endoscopy thing. So I like kind of, sent this all i uploaded it all to my icp and when i got there and i was met with a what have you been doing for the last six months i sort of said well check out the miscellaneous section and they did and they read they read my little entries in my journal they read all the rotors that i put they read my little diary you know all this sort of stuff because i'd evidenced it the arcp panel that they, they were they were surprised but they, they, they were like okay I can see how you're in a difficult placement. That is pretty difficult for you. And within, it was straight after, they were like, leave it with us. We're going to sort this with the educational lead at your trust in your department. And then within the next, like the very next day, they t- told my educational supervisor. So I went to go see my educational supervisor. And thankfully, like, I, I love this guy. Like, this guy is the reason I do vascular. Like, he's just such a wonderful person. Uh, so it happened that he is an education supervisor. He t- he takes quite fondly to me, and he's also the clinical director, which is like the holy trinity. And he basically said, "Right, that's it. From tomorrow, you're not doing any more on calls. Wait." And he rang the person who was doing this, and he was like, "Take him off the rotor now. He's here for education and education purposes. I don't care. Find a locum. Do whatever." And like that was it. So the rest of the placement kind of got salvaged. I suppose the difference there is being in a in a in a welcoming department versus a hostile department. But in both instances, you you have got to be savvy with how you evidence that. Yeah, it sounds like that was maybe a, started out a difficult place and it turned out to be a good one. And I think that was, it sounds like you had a good relationship with your trainers. I mean, uh, yeah, it started out difficult because fundamentally it was a me issue. It was like my life was impacting on my ability to do my job. And so I ended up kind of capitulating. And when they said, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, whatever, okay. And like, I wasn't that motivated in theatre or in clicks because I was distracted. So then it yeah. went down a rocky road, but then it was salvaged. So that's another thing, like your life can get in the way of training, you know, and, and that does happen. You know, we can't pretend that we're just robots that live in servitude. We're people, we have lives, we have families. We have stuff going on, and it, it can sometimes. That can be the thing that makes a placement difficult. Yeah, certainly. Building a relationship with your trainer is something that you it's quite unique to surgical training especially when you get to like registrar level i think because you'd be attached to a, a certain uh consultant and i think that is a skill in itself being able to do that i think we touched upon this last time it is a bit weird and you do require some intonation and the ability to pick up on like subtext and re- you know read the room basically yeah because you will come across some trainers a bit old-fashioned. Like, for example, my last clinical placement before I came out on to do research was with a consultant 
who I was, frankly, I was terrified of. Mm. And the reason why I was terrified of him is because he used to be the former TPD for both general and vascular for the whole of the Northwest. So he was very much about taking the lead, like grab the bull by the horns. And even in ARCPs, I heard how he could, he was very direct. He wouldn't mince his words. So if you thought you were underperforming, he'd be like, it's not good enough. But, 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 but it's not good enough. Sort it out. You've got six months. Sort it out. That's the kind of stuff he would say. So then when I came into this placement thinking, Christ, I'm working for this guy. Um, I'm going to have to be on, on top form here. And in actual fact, it was the best six months of my training life. His ethos was, you're going to do this operation. I'm going to sit in the control room, you know, like in the theater. I'm going to be doing my admin. You've got till like midday to do this case. If you've not done by midday, I'm going to take over. And when, when, when theater staff would complain, he was like, he has to learn. He's not going to be, he's not going to have me holding his hand forever. He needs to learn to do it himself. He's a big lad. He'll do it. And if he doesn't, I'm five feet away. Just come and get me and I'll sort it out. But I have faith in him. And, um, you know, being with a strict person who you're afraid of, like on it, like my logbook and my operative confidence soared. It just went through the roof. And it's because he was someone not to be trifled with. You pay him the respect, you know, because it basically, he started out as a doctor before I was even born. Do, do you know what I mean? And, you know, you wouldn't be like, all right, mate. Like, yes, sir. He, that level of kind of respect and um, gravitas that he afforded him paid off dividends. And, you know, my logbook was amazing. And not even just the numbers. It was like the sheer volume of experience. At some point, you need someone to take the, the you know, the uh, stabilizers off and let you ride freewheel and just sink or swim. And he would do that. He would say, look, I'm going to bugger off. You need to learn to do this. Do it my way. Otherwise, I'm going to kick off when I'm going to stop you doing it. But do it the way I've taught you. But you need to do it yourself. I think you, you sort of demonstrated this concept that we, we often associate, you know, maybe a challenging um, supervisor as someone who is direct and, and maybe a bit harsh, um, if you know what I mean. But it sounds like, you know, even though this guy we're talking about wasn't exactly the softest person to be around, they were still a good trainer and they, you still got, had a good relationship with them. It's just, you know. He was like an exceptional trainer, but like, you know, he was, he's so abrupt that in mornings when we would on call together, he would just text me, Kettle. That, he wouldn't even say anything more, Kettle. That's his nod to me, make me a cup of tea. He wouldn't even say, make me a cup of tea. He'd just say, Kettle. And that's all he's going to give me. And if I, if I didn't have it, he'd be like, where's my brew? Right. First things first, get me a brew. That, that's, he would just bark his orders. But yeah. he let me operate. He let me do whatever. He taught me to like sort of stand on my own too. Like, you know, you ban me on the ice and you'll get this as a reg. You'll be like a bit wobbly, a bit uncertain. And he was like, listen, you're going to do this because you need to do this. Because, you know, uncle is not going to be around forever. You need to learn to do this. So learn to do it and do it right. And then, and that's all you need. You need someone to back you and then allow you to figure it out yourself. And Hannah Mahart is, is, uh, is the best person I've ever done. And it turns out he's retired recently. I'm actually gutted because I'm like, if only I'm retired, the next thing I'll say to the TBD is I want another go on the carousel. Like I want another placement with him because if I did all this in six months by like, you know, another six months, I'd be like the second coming of John Hunter. But there you go. There's sometimes people who you, who, who invoke fear or um, 
anxiety can sometimes, as long as you don't let that dissuade you, can sometimes be like, you know, the best trainers. Yeah. No, I've definitely had that experience. It's certainly during my foundation years. Um, trainers who I was sort of, um, you know, you, you might have a tough time with them. And then it turns out actually, you know, it, it turns out in the end to be really positive. I think that's actually quite a, an uplifting thing when you, when you, when you're worried about how you're going to get on with someone beforehand. And then it turns out they actually, you have a good working relationship with someone. You know, if they give you positive feedback, you know, that's actually, you mean that, do you know what I mean? Cause sometimes you do get feedback from people and you think, are they just trying to be nice? Um, Whereas if it comes from someone who you know is very abrupt and direct and honest, um, it means a lot more um, to you, if you know what I mean. Of course. Uh, the last little thing I saw about this, like, <laughs> it's funny. This trainer who I was scared of, right, and I was assigned to him, well, we, he filled out my uh, educational supervisor's report and he gave me really, really good feedback. And then he said, you know, off the record, when I heard I was getting you, I rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, bloody hell. I thought he'd be in the bin by now. Um, <laughs> And he said, hand on my heart, you have exceeded my, like any of my expectations. You are 1000% better than I ever thought you would be. You, I honestly didn't think you would make it this far. And you, you, you're spot on. Like you're right where you need to be. You're not the finished article yet, but it's like you've got three, four years left of training. So you just keep going on trajectory. You'll do absolutely fine. I a hand on my heart, believe you'll make a, you know, you'll make a great consultant one day. And like, I was, I was filling up, you know what I mean? I was like, Oh my God, this guy used to scare like the shit out of me. And now he's like singing my praises. I'm like, I'm going to cry. I'm going to text my mum right now. Be like, Mr. Said this about me. And yeah, like sometimes you can have that placement, you know, and you can get that. Um, so these placements can be dynamic as well. And the training relationship can be dynamic. Mm. So always black and white. No, don't off. Things can be transformative. Yeah. Maybe that's the thing. It's transformative. Good thing, bad thing. It'll change you for whatever way. It'll change you. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the sort of you know final point, isn't it? The um, whether you have a good or bad placement is still a placement. You know, exactly. it's still you're still going to get something out of it. You may not get as much out of it as you might another placement, but it's not a complete waste of time. Yeah, and remember the place I was telling you about that I really didn't like. I came away with something like that. And there, was, there were quite a few lessons learned. One, I never want to go back to this hospital. Two, I'm never going to be that kind of consultant. Three, I'm never going to throw my trainees under the bus. Four, I'm not going to like operate like this. And this is not who I'm going to be. So that was actually very educational. I learned who I, who I don't want to be. And that, you know, that is a lesson in itself. Yeah. 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 <laughs>